Amen. All right, well, I'm excited to continue our conversation um, on this doing things that matter. I hope things are sticking. I hope some of you I know are readers, and so you probably have been reading the book or have been reading devotional, and I hope you have. And uh, today I want to explore this idea of loving recklessly, and specifically even the added sort of emphasis on loving your city. I mean, we have that on our we have that on our glass out here. There's the big love your city kind of sign, and and we say that around here a lot. And I want to talk about it, but I do want to warn you today. I want to be a little bit all over the map, all right? And but I promise we're going to like land this plane in a blaze of glory. It's going to be amazing, whatever that means. All right, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Uh, I feel like this is a great place to begin. We find, a, we find a well-known story about Jesus healing a man. Um, and it's really the easiest way to get into this. We're just going to read it. So we're in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You all ready? Okay. Yes, you are. I'll answer for you. All right, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered such a large, in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, where he preached the word to them. So we got this picture, right? Jesus has come back into his home kind of area, and he's in a house and he's preaching, and there is so many, this, most scholars believe this is a really large house, so you can imagine a lot of people, they're crammed in, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder, brim, it's, you know, full to the brim. Verse number three, some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. All right, I need to pause here, because this is an unusual sentence. You're like, what's unusual about it? Uh, this is actually quite staggering, the sentence is, because Four men carrying a paralyzed man, this act of carrying a man that was usually overlooked by most, usually someone that people would not necessarily stop and help. Uh, this is a, actually a, a pretty phenomenal sentence that he writes in just a few words that Mark writes here. They're acting on behalf of someone else that usually no one acts on behalf of. So Jesus sees or, or they see, they're going to, probably they're going to see Jesus, and they see this man, and they pick him up. We don't know if they're friends, we don't know all the background, but the chances are they're not this man's friends, but they pick him up and they're carrying him. Verse number four, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. So again, Mark is straight to the point. Um, in one sentence, he just said something quite phenomenal once again. If it was me, it would take me three or four sentences to tell this story. Mark is the shortest gospel of all the gospels, and you can tell why. He's like to the point. You know what I mean? Like he just, let me just tell you exactly what happened. And I'm imagining these guys, they get to the house. They get to the house, they see it's full, and it's, people are, people are trying to squeeze in to get up to even hear Jesus outside of the house, and here comes these four men on a mat, and they're thinking, how do we get in? They can't, the people are shoving, people are pushing, and they, one of them gets this moment, right? He gets this idea. He's like, guys, I have an idea. I think this is going to work. What if we get old boy on the roof? And then we dig a hole in the roof, and then we lower him down to Jesus. And the other three guys are like, that makes a lot of sense. Let's do this. And so somehow they get up and they, they do this. So you got to imagine this. Imagine this scene. Jesus is preaching 
the word is what it says. This is the son of God preaching the word. This is like, this is a sermon where everyone's on the edge of their seat, right? This is Jesus speaking a sermon much, much better than these we do here. And so he is preaching and probably some dirt begins to fall from the ceiling, I imagine right on top of Jesus's head, right? And Jesus stops, pauses, looks, everybody's, this is an intense moment. We're, we're disrupting Jesus. And then all of a sudden, as he's looking, a hole opens up in the roof. And this guy comes lowered down on a mat right in front of Jesus. Can you imagine this scene? I told you to take me three or four paragraphs. Mark said it in a sentence. I'm still talking about it. He, he gets in front of him, right? And he, he lands there. This is, this is the moment. Then in verse five, it says this. When Jesus saw their faith, whose faith? Their faith. Their faith, the four dudes. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus looks up. He sees this, first of all, he sees this man. Then he looks up and he sees these four faces like peering in the hole, right? They're like, what's going to happen? <laughs> and he sees their faith. And now in verse 6, it says, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. I mean, as you do when a guy comes to the roof, you start thinking to yourself. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. So he's reading their minds and he says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up your get up, take your mat and walk. So he's like, he's like kind of egging him on. Like, is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier for me to like heal this guy? And they're thinking once again, well, it'd be easier to say your sins are forgiven. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority, meaning I want you to know that I can forgive sins because I have authority. I'm up to prove to you my authority. He says, so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in, a few, in the full view of all of them. So this crowd, right, that was once shoulder to shoulder is now like splitting like the Red Sea because the dude who couldn't walk is now walking through them, right? And this amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now who got the praise? God got the praise, right? God got the praise and I love this story. I love it because you have these four men who performed this act of reckless love. They had compassion on someone that needed help. They responded with action. They picked up a man they carried him. They overcame obstacles and barriers. And there's all these things that should have stopped them, right? And they went ahead and pushed through and they did something ingenious, inventive, and they got someone to the feet of Jesus in the message, go home, right? Because that's all, I mean, this is the message that preaches, right? You're, you got this message in which you're able to say, this act of reckless love got the person to the feet of Jesus. Everyone was praising God, everyone wins. And this ultimately ends up with Jesus doing the miraculous. But I, I think there's a conversation around this because it's not always this easy, is it? It's not always as easy as me saying, hey, go do compassionate acts of love. And then all of a sudden, everyone ends with praising God. You go and do something loving and then everybody's like, woo, woo, Jesus. That doesn't necessarily happen, does it? It's not really happening. And so I think there's an interesting conversation about loving recklessly and the idea of love that's alive in our culture today that I wanna kind of explore because I think so often we're just told to go love the world and that then 
we'll proclaim who Jesus is and the whole world will be changed by our love. We quote the scriptures that kind of say that and they do mean that, but there's a whole embedded story underneath that that we have to dig into to say, we can't just be doing good deeds. There has to be something more to this because here's the truth. There are all sorts of people who love recklessly, but they don't do it in the name of Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? There's a lot of great people out there that are loving in the name of something else, loving in the name of humanity or loving in the name of another religion or Allah or Buddha or Oprah Winfrey for that matter, right? They're loving in all sorts of names of other things, right? So what makes the message of what we say any different if all we're saying is we're going to change the world by our love? What makes it different? What makes what we're saying the Bible teaches about loving our neighbors what makes it different than your neighbor who's a really good neighbor but doesn't do it in the name of Jesus? You ever think about this? If we're just trying to be good people and trying to be loving people, what distinguishes it? What makes it transformative? What makes it leave people praising God? I want to talk about um, human history for like two minutes because <laughs> you can do that in two minutes. I have a slide for us. Um, this is a very simplistic representation of human history, cultural history, uh, throughout time, and I'll let you kind of soak it in as I talk about it. But over here to uh, your right is what's called the postmodern era, which is the era we're currently living in, started somewhere in the mid-20th century. And if you, if you move backwards, um, there's all these other areas that you have heard the words of the modern era, the Renaissance era, the Middle Ages, the ancient periods, the prehistoric. There's probably, depending on which list you look at, there can be other words that are thrown in there and other things, but those are the ones that you're going to get in your basic humanities seventh grade class, right? You, you got that. And, and so you're going to see these and kind of what happened. But in, what's interesting about the era we're living in, and I'm showing you all this to really get to the end of this in post-modernity. What's interesting about our era is the world has changed. Every era is ushered in by some dramatic change in the world, either through politics or power or breakthrough or knowledge. And so Renaissance was obviously a revolution, right, of some, of some sort of thought. And, and, and in the postmodern era, what's happening is we see globalization happening in our, in, our, in our world over the last, you know, 100 or so years, since early in the 20th century, transportation, communication, technology, it's exploding, it's changing the world. And as a result, people now, are more connected than ever, aren't they, around the world? And they also, though, as a result, is like a huge melting pot of all these different distinctions that used to be made between religion and culture. They're now becoming a melting pot. Think about a large city and all the different cultures living within it and how they're becoming a melting pot. Everything's bleeding together, right? So one of the effects of post-modernity has been, are you with me? Yes, okay. One of the effects of post-modernity has been the rise of some isms, and one of them would be postmodernism, or another term that people use with that would be relativism, which you all know what relativism is. It's the, it's the basic belief that truth is relative to the person's experience. So meaning, whatever truth you hold is relative to your experience, and whatever truth I hold is relative to my experience. So for example, and I show you all this to really show you a couple things. One, Post-modernity, post-modern era, there's two, two concepts about it. One, it's a new era of time, and with it comes new cultural realities. And one of the cultural realities is this rise of relativism. So, for example, you may think, you, personally you, may think that Long John Silver's is the best restaurant you've ever been to in your experience. In my experience, it's the worst. 
Relativism says both are true. Do you understand what I'm saying? Relativism says both are true because you believe it to be true and I believe it to be true, therefore both can be true. I say I need to take you out to eat somewhere else, right? Go anywhere and it's going to be better in LJ's. So relativism, though, allows multiple truths to exist. Now, what, what am I talking about? I thought we were talking about loving recklessly. Well, here's the thing. If truth is derived by what people experience, well, what, is, what are they experiencing when it comes to the church and to, it comes to Christ followers, when it comes to even us as neighbors? What are they experiencing? And, and this, is a, this is a pretty profound question and pretty deep question because we have to ask ourselves a lot of more questions. But if we think about this from the standpoint of the church, many have, are clamoring for the world to go back the way it was. They don't like this idea of relativism and no absolute truths, and they're always kind of championing the, the absolute truth sort of drum, aren't they? They're kind of beating that drum. There's absolute truth, there's absolute truth. There, and, and, and I believe there is an absolute truth, and it's in the person of God. But I don't want to point people back to a different era because the world does not go backwards, it only goes forward, doesn't it? And so instead of turning people to go back to a black and white world where there was no melting pot, where there was no cultural realities of relativism, I actually want to think, how do we reimagine a world with Jesus in it where relativism exists because it's a cultural reality? Are you with me? I know I'm getting a little bit like sociological here, but stay with me. Because here's the thing, we want to go forward and we want people to understand how to live within this cultural reality as followers of Jesus who then are helping people experience Jesus in a way that's different than the person who's showing love, but not in the name of Jesus. You see what I'm saying? How is the experience we're showing the world actually different than what anybody else is showing them? Because everything is relative to the experience of the person, therefore we really have to ask ourselves, we have to actually be thinking deeper than just being a good person, a loving person, doing kind set, uh, acts of compassion and service, don't we? So, this is what we're getting at today. Our culture informs us of something critical about truth. And we have to ask ourselves, how are people experiencing the church, capital C, our faith, I think I bring this up because I believe one of the prevailing experiences in our culture is Christianity in forms of extremism. You know what I'm talking about? This is what a lot of prevailing experiences are. People hear stories of TV preachers who are asking for money. They hear stories of white nationalists in Charlottesville quoting the Bible, right? Or they, or they see extreme political activists making Jesus a politician. You guys know what I'm talking about. And so they experience these extreme versions of Christianity. And I think, I, I think even in our own life, there's, there's examples, right? I think of several years ago, Micah and I went to an OU football game, one of the great moments of my life. Not the football game, but what I'm about to tell you. Um, well, football game was good too. So we were going to the football game, and we're walking up to the stadium. And here comes this guy just walking along, wearing a, we're carrying a sign that looks like he made it in his garage with a big bed sheet and a bucket of red paint, and it said, this is of Satan. And I'm like, we look at each other like, what is this dude doing? Like, what is he, what is he thinking? Is he saying that football is of Satan? Because we know this is not true. God created football. You remember the song, Big Big House? Anybody with me? Nod your head if you know the song, Big Big House, where there's a big, big yard where we can play football? Come on. This is not of Satan. 
brother. So he's carrying, and then we think he's, we finally figure out he's not alone. There's all sorts of banner-carrying lunatics walking around. And one of them's carrying one that says, he will forgive you. Another one's carrying a, one that says, you're going to hell, which confused me. <laughs> Forgiveness or am I going to hell? Am I going to both at the same time? I didn't know what was going on. Then I see this one guy, and he's riding a bike, and it says, Jesus saves. And he's yelling at the same time, you're going to hell. So at this moment, I went over and clotheslined the dude off his bike, and the crowd started cheering. That didn't happen. Um, but everything else happened. So what did the crowd experience that day? What was the relative experience for those who haven't drawn conclusions about Jesus? Well, what they, what they saw was not Jesus saves, right? They didn't experience that. What they experienced was hatred. What they experienced was judgment. What they experienced was extremism. And, and for many, it was just a lack of intelligence. And they're looking at these people who say they love Jesus, and they're just thinking, man, you are just off your rocker. I don't want any part of that. So when people experience these extreme versions of, who, of people who claim Jesus, well, it just makes it harder for those of us who aren't the barren of carrying lunatics, right? And this is the kind of stuff that's happening again and again in our culture, and people... People's belief, if you will, in an absolute truth of Jesus as Lord is hanging in the balance and it's suffering. Do you guys feel this? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? So today I begin by telling us a story about these four men carrying a guy to Jesus, right? To get him to Jesus. It was an act of compassion and care. And I keep coming back to this question, but what distinguishes our love from someone else, from someone else's? Because these Experiences the world have, they're, they're, they're all over the map, and extremism, extremism has marred the image of, and the message of, of Christ. And so I want to take you to a kind of an obscure passage in the book of Job. I heard a pastor use this uh, in a message recently, and it grabbed my attention for specifically for our time today. Um, Job 29.6. When my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, now, uh, this is an odd sentence, uh, to say the least. But I, instead of reading the whole chapter and trying to give you everything, I'll just tell you really quick what's going on. Um, so Job is writing this long list of all these things that he was experiencing in a time when God had given him influence among people. And so he was talking about all these things that, oh God, when I had influence among people, there was these things I was experiencing. And one of them was this imagery, right, of my feet being washed in butter. And when I say butter, you got to say butter right? And, and there's this experience that he had. And um, now the book of Job is a prophetic book, meaning it's a book in which um, there's a lot of symbolism going on in it, in which you're saying something that actually means something else. For example, it, what's the spirit doing uh, in the physical? What's the unseen doing in the seen realm? And so this is what uh, happens a lot in prophetic books. It's, it's kind of in that sort of language, and that's what's going on here. And so Job is saying, there was a time, God, when your presence was with me so thick that when I stepped out of my house, it was like my feet were dripping with butter. Now, I don't know what kind of imagery you get like that. I mean, I picture like a Lando Lake stick of butter, like just dripping over my foot, right? It's been melted and I'm just, just like butter. You know what I mean? And I'm walking. And so what happens when you walk with butter on your feet? Some of you are like, whoop, whoop, whoop. you slip, right? <laughs> But if you don't slip, what else happens? There's 
there's marks everywhere you go, isn't there? There's these marks. And so butter, and then it goes on to say, it, what did it say? It said, rock poured out for me streams of oil. So, the, so in, the, in, the, in the prophetic language, the idea of, of, of spirit and I mean, of oil and butter is this idea of spirit. So it represents the spirit. You guys have heard anointing with oil, right? And, and, and there's this picture that everything and everywhere he went, he was leaving these footprints of the spirit of God, the presence of God with him. Every time he stepped out of his house, it was like the presence of God was leading and guiding his steps. And it was also being left and marked everywhere he went. You see this beautiful picture that he's talking about, right? You, you get this. You see, if our love is going to be experienced differently, then I believe it's got to be drenched with the Spirit of God. I believe so many people are doing good deeds, and, and I don't mean to dumb down good deeds, loving acts of compassion and love and kindness. We're trying to be good people, but we aren't bathing those things in the presence of God. You see, in Mark 2, these four guys, they do this loving act. They carry this guy. But they didn't act to go fix the problem, did they? They couldn't fix the problem. What they did was dependent on Jesus. If you think about it, because if, if, if Jesus didn't do what he did, guess what their act looks like? Foolishness, doesn't it? They look like fools if Jesus doesn't do what he did. But most of us aren't willing to look like fools. So we control our love. We, 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 we express our love in controllable outcomes to where it usually leaves the people doing what? Thanking us for our generosity and love versus praising God. You see, when you look like fools and you're dependent on Jesus, it actually leaves people praising God because he was the one that really did the miraculous work, not you. So people aren't thanking you for your generosity and your love. They're actually praising God. And so there's something alive in these stories and this idea of walking in the presence of God that's just, it's kind of changing my perspective on love to where it's not, sure, we should go do loving acts. Sure, we should learn people's names. Sure, we should, we should be compassionate and we should do things for the kingdom. But, but first, there has to be something that happens that's real within us. If we want to love our neighbors, it's probably time to cover our neighborhoods in prayer that's dependent on Jesus. If we were praying prayers over our neighborhood that we couldn't do without Jesus, maybe that's what our neighborhoods need. We need to walk and pray over our neighborhoods, leaving footprints of the presence of God wherever we go. And some of you are like, I don't do walks. Ride your bike, drive your car, I don't care. Cover your neighborhood in prayer. I have some deep convictions these last few months about this and my own life and seeing breakthrough in our neighborhood. And I have to be better about praying for, praying for God's presence to permeate through every corner of my neighborhood, to, to guide my steps and my acts of love. So when I, when I step out of my house, it'll be like my feet have been bathed in butter in the presence of God that I'm walking in the presence of God, where I'm taking my acts of love, not by just trying to be a good person, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm being ordered by his presence. And when I say prayers, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying wishes. I'm praying, I'm, I'm saying pray God's kingdom come as will be done. 
If we want to love our city well, well, we can't just occasionally do good deeds, which I hate to say is probably the reality for most of us. We have to be praying for our schools and our city leaders and our, we need to be praying in our neighborhoods and up and down 23rd Street. And I, w- I was thinking about this. If you're going to love something, don't you need to, whenever you love something, you care about it. And, and if you care about it and you love something, you're going to typically pray for it for those who are followers of Jesus. But what I find happens for a lot of followers of Jesus is we're actually praying for things that are related to our life either directly things about us or people that are really close to us. That's what the most of our prayers are about, right? So what does that essentially say about our prayers? They're typically very me-centric, which means what? What do we love? What do we care about? Because if we love it and we care about it, what are we praying for? Well, who do we love? Ourselves. Because everything and most of our prayer energy gets spent on ourselves and people that are directly linked to us. And we're rarely praying for things outside of ourselves. We're rarely praying for the kingdom come and the will be done in our city. We're praying for kingdom come, will be done as long as it's really good in my life. Isaiah 52, 7 says this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say, Zion, your God reigns. Didn't we sing that today? Our God reigns, right? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and bring good tidings and proclaim salvation. What the world needs are people that are willing, that are willing to walk in love, right? People who are, who are, who are loving in faith, who believe if I, my, my act of love is going to fall short if it doesn't depend on Jesus doing something. People like those four men who are dependent on Jesus. I say, I say it all the time, it's sort of the sort of the thing right after our, the doing things that matter mantra. But listen, the danger is not that we become bad people who don't care about things that matter. That's not the danger for most of us. The danger is that we become good people who don't do anything that matters. That's the danger we're up against. And, and here's the deal. So many followers of Jesus' effort to be good. By the way, this is, this is, this is, I believe this is a word from the Lord for many of us. It's a gentle word. It's a word that's saying, gosh, open your eyes. I believe so many of us as followers of Jesus effort to be good people, but we need to effort to bring the kingdom. We need to effort to make way for the presence of God. We need to love in faith, dependent on Jesus and dependent on God to move in ways that we can never move. So I'm talking about loving recklessly and I'm talking about trying to speak um, to this very essence of how our love must begin, all that sort of stuff. So where do we begin? Well, I've already been saying it, but I just want to make sure we're hearing it. We begin by, lo- by, by loving our neighbors in our city by praying. Praying to have a vision for things that we can't see. Praying for those that are in need to have their needs met. Not just the people you know in need, but the people in our city in need, that their needs would be met. Praying for those in forms of bondage for their for those, those bondage things to be broken. And then, listen, and then that whatever chains are broken, whatever needs are met, whatever blessings are received, that they would give glory to who? God. That we would start praying, things like that. So I think for us, where do we begin? We need to start probably walking or praying through our neighborhoods. We need to start maybe showing up early 
to work and praying for 20 minutes. We need to turn off the radio at times so we can pray in our cars on the way to the places we go. So that when we step out of our cars and we step into our workplaces, we step out of our houses, it's like we're stepping with the presence of God dripping all of our feet and it's taking us to new places to see new things and to give love in ways that are dependent on Jesus to do something, not dependent on us to do something. When I was thinking about this again, I was thinking about how the, the men, right, they got Jesus where? To the feet of Jesus. We have a lot of feet going on today, right? It gets him to the feet of Jesus, and it made me think of another story, of course, where Jesus is talking with Martha and Mary, and Martha's complaining. You know, Mary's left me to do all the work. Aren't you going to say something to her? And what does Jesus say? You guys know the story probably. Jesus says, hey, Mary has chosen what is better because Mary was where? Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening intently to what he said. He said, Mary's chosen what is better, and it's not going to be taken from her. There's no better place to be than the feet of Jesus. And not only for us, but we've got to believe that for others. We've got to believe that for those in our neighborhoods, and we've got to figure out how do we do whatever it takes, whether it be fighting through the crowds, fighting through the barriers, fighting through the cultural challenges that we face, to get people to the feet of Jesus, because that's really what this is about. Some of you know, um, this last week, our family had a bit of a scare on Monday night. Um, our, we ended up in the emergency room as a result of the scare. Our Karis, our 11-year-old, sitting up here, um, was playing with her sister in the house, and we have one of those, we have, we have a door that has a, has a glass window in it, and they sort of collided on this door, and the glass shattered, and, and the, when the glass fell, it hit Karis's wrist and sliced it open. Not just like small cut, not just like a, a gash, it was like the real deal. Like, so she, there's a pause after the crash, we don't really know what happened, and then we hear screams, and she comes running to me, and I see a lot of blood, and I see a lot of things I shouldn't see, right? Um, and so we immediately like start panicking and start knowing we got to do something. And so I grab her arm because I'm thinking it's on her wrist, right? Like this is a big deal. I grab her arm, I squeeze it. I'm squeezing as hard as I can, and I'm trying to make sure that she's not, you know, gonna get any more damage. And so I, I start yelling at Christy to get me a towel, and she gets me a towel, and I'm squeezing that. And then uh, we know we got to go. We know we got to leave. We know we got to get to the hospital as fast as we can. And so I start yelling. Uh, get her shoes, get a, get a, get a phone, get uh, every, you know, I'm just yelling. And which I realized my panicked self, my panics, I, this is know yourself, lead yourself. I, my panicked self is a yeller. Some people panic, some people panic by, by hyperventilating. Some people panic by crying. I panic by yelling. So I'm sorry to my family for yelling at all of you today. Uh, that, so anyway, we get in the car and, and we're driving to the hospital, we get there as quickly as we can. We go in the emergency room. They actually take her in immediately and they look at her to take her out and they start taking care of her, right? And we find out that, that even the doctor said it's a miracle that her, her artery or her vein and her, uh, and, and even the tendons weren't cut. They don't really understand how that didn't happen because it was deep enough and big enough that it should have. So it was a, it was a miracle, right? And uh, we're so, so thankful for that. And so they ended up sewing her up. She's got, gonna have this really amazing scar to tell a story for the rest of her life and all that kind of stuff. Right? Well, when I was thinking about this just, you know, post, like we've been thinking about it all week, and I thought about, well, what do we do immediately? Well, we're in the car, and I just remember Christy and I, and we, we, start, we start praying, right? We're praying out loud in the car. I'm squeezing her arm, we're just like, 
Jesus, please take care of our girl. Lord, we pray that nothing's wrong. Will you protect her right now? We just start praying. We just start praying. We're getting there. We get there, and of course, find everything's okay. And, and, and what I say, the people we love, I mean, those of you who are parents, you know, like, the, the love you have for your children is a unique kind of love, right? It's kind of hard to explain. And the people you care about, you, you pray for, right? The people you love, you pray for. And, and in, in this instance, the prayer was desperate. The prayer was, the prayer was dependent, wasn't it? I, it was dependent on God to do something that I didn't think I could do, or maybe even the doctors could do. It was dependent prayer, and it was, it was a prayer that only, only God could do. And, and sometimes I wonder if our, our, our acts of love and our prayers of love for, for not just our own life and the lives of those who directly related to us, but those that are, that are really for the city and for the world, if our, if our prayers and our acts of love are, are, are dependent enough, and if they're desperate enough, and if they're really dependent on things that only God can do. Because, you know, once we found out that Karis is okay, guess what happened? We started praising God. We started saying, thank you, Lord. And we've been doing it all week. And, and, and I want, and I know that's, a, that's an emergency standpoint, but I was thinking about it in, in our conversation and this idea of love and that I want to pray for our city, for my neighborhood with desperation. And I want to pray for dependency that I, I'm willing to look like a fool, right? I want to be that person that's willing to look like a fool, that if Jesus doesn't do what we need him to do, we're going to look like a fool. But that we're so dependent on him that we know that getting people to the feet of Jesus is the most critical thing of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we'll do whatever it takes. That's loving recklessly, right? And that whenever, the, whenever we get that person there, guess what's going to happen? They're, they're not going to turn to us and say, oh, thank you so much for your generosity. They're going to start praising God. Because why? Because Jesus will meet them in that moment when he's at their feet, and he will look at them and not only say, you are forgiven, but he'll raise them up to walk in a new life. He'll do you understand that so much of the Bible, so much of the Bible is prophetic. I've been talking about prophecy. The guy was paralyzed. He couldn't walk. We think about that in physical realm, but the spiritual realm, what is he saying? I want everybody to raise and walk in a new life. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to raise you up, and I'm going to give you a new life. This is what Jesus does when we get people to the feet of Jesus. And when I think about what distinguishes our love, this goes back to post-modernity and your relativism now. You guys, we're back. What is going to distinguish our love in this world, in a culture that is so rooted in tr truth being relative to their experience, but they need to experience a kind of love that doesn't turn back to us and say, thank you, but it begins to praise God because we've done some sort of love in which we've, we've bathed ourselves in the presence of God that when we step out of our houses and into our neighborhoods, we're taking the presence of God with us in such a way that it leads people to the feet of Jesus so they will praise God. So what do we do? <laughs> if we're not praying, if we're not bathing ourselves in the presence of God, our loving acts, they, they just, they're just like everyone else's loving acts. See what I'm saying? Are you with me? So if there's ever a call to say, I've, I've often thought about loving recklessly and I've thought about it in a real material sense, in a real tangible sense. And, and maybe the first time I started to realize, no, God is calling me to a different kind of love. 
that reckless love is one that is much, much deeper than action. That's the, that's the banner, right? Love is action. Love is verb. It is. But first, it's sitting in his presence and letting him lead us. It's praying over our neighborhoods and praying his kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where it is. So may you be encouraged today. I hope this made some sense. We can be people who walk in love. And maybe it begins today with you praying some prayers that aren't just about your own life, but it's about things beyond yourself. Maybe it begins by praying for a city or a neighborhood. Maybe it begins by praying for people that you know need Jesus, but you just haven't prayed for them. But I hope today that maybe you're going to feel compelled to say, I need to pray. Sometimes we let, you know, we, we encourage you to come and pray here. And I would say, yeah, come and pray here. Come pray at this altar. Let's start praying. Let's start responding to the Spirit. Let's start ne never letting a moment pass where Jesus is leading us and pulling us out of ourselves into another place. Let's never let ourselves be resistant of that that we would step into the moments in which God is calling us forward because we, the world moves forward and that's where we need to lead. We don't need to be going backward. And so if he's leading us to come and pray, we come and pray. If he's leading us to go to a friend and say, you know what, we need to pray for our neighborhood because we live in the same neighborhood. Do it. Pray. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. And then when we're done, we're going to sing a song that we all know about the Holy Spirit coming present among us, right? We're going to sing that, but we're going to pray through that as well. So Lord, we come to you and we, uh, we, we just give you these next few moments. They're yours. We ask the Lord you'd use them and, and that they would be uh, moments in which we would be emboldened in our understanding of what it means to be people who love recklessly. God, we love you. We trust you. We give you these, this, this time.